thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hello, I'm Chris Smith from the Naked Scientist team. This week I'm joined by Simon Morton from Radio New Zealand's This Way Up programme for the first of two special editions. At the Auckland University of Technology, we were joined by a panel of six New Zealand-based scientists to talk about their work. We'll be hearing how lasers are being used to sort sperm for the dairy industry. There's research on how to test for life on Mars. We find out about the viruses which attack bacteria and which could be used instead of antibiotics. There's a new online system to treat depression and anxiety. How genetic techniques are tracking the spread of Ebola and other viruses and predicting their impact and why radio transmitters are being strapped to the backs of bees. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. We start with Kather Simpson, who's the director of the Photon Factory at the University of Auckland. There, they use high-tech lasers to solve a variety of problems, including exploring ways of harnessing sunlight to produce energy. One project uses them to etch thermally absorbent surfaces and another studies how pigments fade on old works of art. Laser technology is also helping the New Zealand dairy industry to sort bovine sperm so they can determine the sex of calves. But before we got into the details of that, Kather gave us a colourful explanation and demonstration of just how lasers work. So a laser is a very special light source. So if you look at the lights in the room, you'll see that they look white or maybe slightly blue. That's because they're putting out light of all different colors in all different directions. Lasers essentially pick out one color and put it out in a very tightly focused, we call it a coherent beam. So I have three different lasers here. One is very blue, one is very green, and one is very red. And Kathan, these are like little mag lights, aren't they? They're about the size of a sort of a, a, a pen. Do they actually burn? Could you burn a f- sort of hole in my head with any of those? Or? Uh, let's try it. Oh, really? <laughs> Isn't that dangerous um, to shine so a laser at someone's you eyes? You should never shine a laser at anyone's eyes. Most laser pointers, um, the two, I have two that are slightly bigger than the average laser pointer that you would get in the $2 shop. Um, these are ones that we bought for my research lab. So we use these in experiments, and uh, that's why they've got duct tape on them, because we take them apart and put them back together. Never shine them at your eyes. Brilliant. What are you trying to discover then at the Photon Lab? So what we're trying to discover at the Photon Factory is how molecules absorb light, which is a kind of energy, and turn it into a more useful form of energy. And so if you look, for example, this is just tonic water. Because we're scientists, I'll show you. See? Really tonic water. The Schweppes label. Where's the gin? Yes. Ah, that was... You guys were supposed to bring the gin. Um, So tonic water has um, a, a chemical in it called quinine. It's the stuff that makes it taste bitter, and it's the stuff that cures malaria. And um, if I take my UV laser, my my very purple one, and I shine it at tonic water, and all I've got, I've got two two-liter bottles here, and I've put some aluminum foil, uh, aluminium foil <laughs> on one side <laughs> to get a few more reflections. And what you can see 
is those of you who can see, and I'll hold it up. Wow, it's amazing. There's a very distinct beam there going through the tonic water, and it looks, I mean, that's sort of Han Solo sort of stuff, isn't it's it? A, it looks like a lightsaber, doesn't it? So for those of you who want to make a lightsaber, if you fill a tube with tonic water, you're right on. It'd be quite heavy, um, wouldn't it? Yeah. So so if you, if you see this, it's a different color, isn't it? It's kind of a light blue color, sort of white, compared to that purple color. And so what the quinine molecule is doing is it's absorbing the light, it's getting all excited, and it's turning it into a different color of light. If I use my red laser, all you see is red, right? And if I use my green laser, all you see is green. And all you're seeing there are reflections. The molecules aren't absorbing and converting it to anything. So in other words, the molecules of quinine in the bottle are exclusively and selectively responding to the purple light, but not the green and the red. Absolutely. And so what we study is um, the same light that's coming off of here or that you're getting out of these um, black lights, it's hitting the back of your eye. And the reason that you're seeing something is because in a very, very short time, millions of a billionth of a second, the molecule in the back of your eye is converting it to molecular motion. The molecules that are in plants that do photosynthesis are converting that light energy to a little battery. And the molecules that are in my finger, when I take a green, even an intense green laser pointer, you can't see it at all, right? The molecules that are in my finger are the hemes that make your blood red are absorbing that light and extremely rapidly sending it out as heat. Okay, And so we study how molecules, and a lot of those are related to one another in structure, how molecules decide what they're going to do. What are the applications of this? What sorts of things can we use our understanding of how lasers interact with materials the way you've been showing us to do? So in our lab, we do everything from that kind of fundamental, fundamental research, um, looking at how these molecules change uh, light into other forms of energy. And the students who are studying that are looking at things like how art pigments fade and how we might prevent them from fading or how we might make better solar energy harvesting complexes. But we also take our lasers and and use the fact that they're dumping energy into a system to make them very practical. So, for example, Intel would love to be able to use one of our very short pulsed lasers to dice chips for the semiconductor industry. Right now, the, the narrow pulses don't have quite enough energy in them, so it's too slow to be economical. But we have a big grant from uh, the government to try to use our physics knowledge to make them more efficient, and that's very exciting. Because I was talking to a guy the other day who um, has actually found that you can put a lot of energy into something with a laser, but if you were to put all of the energy in all at once, the temperature would be obviously very high because of the huge amount of energy going in. But if you spread this as a series of little pulses over time, you can put enormous amounts of energy in, but it's not going to get to a very high temperature and burn the thing. But then you, can, you get the changes you've been showing us with light coming back out. You get that information coming out so you can, you can interrogate materials and find out, for instance, what paints were used to paint a picture or tell if it's real or if it's a phony picture or, or something someone knocked up in their back garden. You can certainly do that. So you can get the spectrum if you use a, a, a laser, like you're describing, a pulse laser. Um, there's a really interesting thing that happens when you start taking a laser like this one, which is coming out all the time. This is continuous wave. And you start taking the beam and you chop it into little pulses. You don't get rid of light. You essentially kind of, it's like if you had Play-Doh and you made it into little hills, right? At some point, you start making those pulses very dangerous because there's so much energy inside that you ablate the material, you remove it. So if I use one of the lasers in my lab that is about a billionth of a second long, then with a single shot, 
So this is a nanosecond pulse. I could detach the retina from the back of your eye. That's a little gruesome. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't I have to work in your laboratory. But, but I could. But I could also. I could also drill through a piece of stainless steel. And just very briefly, I mentioned this at the beginning. I said you're also sorting sperm out with with lasers. How are you doing that? So we sort sperm with lasers um, using the fact that the same kind of energy that we're talking about damaging stuff, you're essentially hitting materials, and so you're generating forces. So you can make a solar sail, for example, put big aluminum foil. But not with sperm, though. No, but yes, we do with sperm. So one of the things that we do is we put them in a little channel. These are bovine sperm. Um, for the dairy industry, and they're disc-shaped. And so, um, it, and in fact, it's like trying to sort Frisbees. So we put them in a channel, and we use the fact that these things generate pressure, and that puts them all in, oriented the same way, and they go down this channel, and we say, ah, there's a male sperm and a female sperm. The male sperm. How do you tell them apart? So the male sperm has a Y chromosome, which is a little bit smaller, and so when you use fluorescence, that means the males aren't quite as bright just as the not females. The male, just more aggressive and miserable. And uh, no, it has nothing to do with aggression. They, they it has to, to do with directions. brilliance. The, sp- the, male sperm, the male sperm don't say, which direction do I have to go? No, 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 no. It's not about asking directions. And then we then use another laser pulse to, to take the ones that we've identified as female in this case and go, boom, and we just move them over. Hey, thanks, Katha Simpson, director of the Photon Factory from the University of Auckland. Into outer space now. And Professor Steve Pointing is the director of the Institute for Applied Ecology at AUT University, where he's hunting for life on Mars. So why the red planet, Steve? Why, why Mars? Why not, for instance, Uranus? <laughs> oh, I, I was hoping someone else would get that one in before I did. Um, <laughs> so to speak, yeah. 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 Um, hey, look, Mars is our closest neighbour, and to understand why it's worth looking there... Um, it's more than just proximity and getting there easily. It's also about understanding a concept, and that concept is known as the habitable zone. So essentially for any star like our sun, there is a a, a very small zone around that star that is able to support planets that can harbour life. And it's really a, a confluence of two functions. Number one, the planet needs to be just the right distance from that star to allow water to exist as a liquid. So if it's too far away, the water is cold and frozen. If it's too close, the water is evaporated and not available. And the second thing is the planet has to have enough mass to retain an atmosphere such that gases that are useful to life, like carbon dioxide, like oxygen, are retained, but heavier, more toxic gases are are, are not retained. Yeah, you know they were going to build a nightclub on Mars, but uh, they said it was crap because there's no atmosphere. (laughs) Oh, great. Parking wouldn't be an issue anyway. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Funnily enough, going on from that, there's actually a, a Dutch TV company have been advertising for a, a bunch of individuals to take a one-way trip up to Mars for a reality show. But they were all old people, and they said old people only, didn't they? Because they didn't want anyone who was going to come back. <laughs> they said, well, a, a, it would affect the budget, um, and B, there, there was danger of radiation exposure, wasn't there? Because NASA did, with the Curiosity rover that landed, it's almost two years ago, it's this weekend, isn't it? It's going to be two years of Curiosity, the it's rover It's two years this week, down. yes. Um, they used the radiation sensor on Curiosity to measure the incident radiation exposure that it got during the... Because it's over half a billion kilometres of travel to Mars, isn't it? That's right, it's six and months in a... It, it equated to a, mm-hmm. an, basically an astronaut's entire working lifetime's worth of radiation exposure just making that journey. Absolutely, and, and that's, that's largely because there is no atmosphere to block out those, those harmful incoming rays. So, yeah, it, it, would, it would be a ma- absolutely unimaginably large um, task to, to get people living up there permanently. 
Um, but, you know, we have to aim big. Uh, the, the simple truth is that um, when one considers our, our, our star, it has a finite lifespan, and we're a, a single-planet species at the moment. Um, and so really, you know, philosophically, we have to ask ourselves, do we really want to admit that once planet Earth becomes uninhabitable, that we're going to die out? Um, so, so that's really, for my mind, is the philosophy behind exploring Mars. What makes you think that Mars might have life on it at all? Well, it's a good question. Um, the sort of life we'd be looking for, let, let me be clear, is, is not little green men. You know, I, I don't think we're expecting... Oh. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> we're, we're, we're not really looking at that. Um, the, re- the reason is this, and I've, I've got a bit of show and tell um, for the people listening. I'm holding up a rock at the moment which has a, a rather smudgy green line just beneath the surface. This is the surface of the rock here. And this green line is about 20 millimetres below the surface. And this is the sort of life that we expect to encounter on Mars. This particular rock is actually from Antarctica, but Antarctica is what we call a Mars analogue. It's, it's the closest thing on Earth that we have to Mars' surface. It's very cold, it's very dry, and there's relatively high radiation levels there because the atmosphere is thinner at the poles. Um, this sort of life, although it's green, is not a green man or a green woman, it's actually uh, cyanobacteria, which are very, very primitive plants. They're single-celled microbial plants, essentially. And that's the sort of thing we're expecting to find there. And 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 just to be clear, uh, they can actually thrive in the temperatures. They're actually viable at the sorts of temperatures you see in Antarctica. Well, they're not viable at surface temperature. The surface temperature on Mars can be anything down to minus 110 degrees, which biological reactions just won't occur there. But these organisms are just below the surface. And And the reason is that in Antarctica, for example, they're exploiting very marginal gains in temperature and humidity that occur below the surface. And so the reason Curiosity, for example, has a drill on it is that NASA's aim is to drill into the rock and thereby try to identify whether life is either present or has been present in the past, which is probably our, our best bet. Have they found so, anything yet? No, this, uh, Curiosity is not, doesn't have a primary aim to search for life. Curiosity actually is looking for the chemical conditions that could have supported life. So, for example, um, how um, sustained was the presence of water on the surface? But in 2020, there is a, sort of an amped-up version of Curiosity going to be launched, which will have a, a slightly adjusted payload, uh, and that will have a direct aim to search for life. And actually, it's a good segue to our previous speaker because it's actually using lasers, um, in this case a, a Raman spectroscopy laser, to try and identify compounds that are specific to, to life, and in particular these, these green life forms, the cyanobacteria. So you've looked in rocks from Antarctica and have presupposed that if life does exist on Mars, it's probably going to be sort of similar or have similar chemistry to the life we see in extreme environments here on Earth that are sort of similar. So if we therefore go looking for those same sorts of chemical hallmarks on Mars, that's the best place to go looking. Yeah, I mean, I, I, th- there are arguments for and against this, this strategy. I mean, some people could argue, why would, why would life be DNA-based, for example, as all life on Earth is? But, but the, simple, the simple truth is that um, chemistry has arrived at the most parsimonious solution for life. Um, it, the, the simplest solutions are often the best. And so we know that there are certain compounds in life that are very good indicators, and in particular, not necessarily DNA, um, but actually chem- chem- compounds such as chlorophyll, for example, are potentially a very good indicator for life. So this habitable zone, Mars, is basically the convenient option. It is a convenient Six option. Six months, I mean, it makes your trip through Dubai look pretty uh, easy, doesn't it? You were whinging about that. What, my trip down here? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm not sure what the, what the lounge would be like in Mars. But, um, <laughs> no, but the, the great thing about Mars is, is also looking at Mars' immediate past. Um, probably as little as five million years ago, Mars very possibly was pretty much like maritime Antarctica is now. It was much warmer, much wetter. And, and 
quite conceivably could have supported life. And that's largely a result of the, the obliquity of the planet having changed quite radically. Why do um, you think that's happened? And why so recently? Um, well, th- this, is, this is down to astronomers, but um, quite simply, the, the, the angle of tilt for the planet Mars has changed from about 45 degrees to about 23 degrees, which is more or less identical to Earth's, just in the last five million years. And, of course, the poles were that much more exposed to the sun, and most of the water is at the poles. Um, ergo, there would have been much more water, and that's really the basic prerequisite for life. Because it's very recent, isn't it, that it's it gone, is, yeah. undergone such a dramatic shift? Yeah, it, I mean, it, it is an estimate, of course, um, but, but it's, um, you know, th- those, those that know in the, in the astronomy field uh, stick by that. So do we think then that, because we know life got started on Earth very quickly, didn't it? I mean, by 3.9 billion years ago, in a planet that's only 4.5 billion years old, we've got mm. evidence that there were little cells already here going about their business on Earth. Do we think that probably the same thing was happening in parallel on Mars then? Well, a lot of people believe so. Um, as you say, I mean, life on Earth, there are traces for life on Earth pretty soon after the lunar cataclysm. And, and life could have even conceivably originated before then, but been wiped out by the, as, as you may know, there was a, a very large impact of planet Thea, that, protoplanet Thea, that impacted early Earth um, and the mess that resulted as ejector into space formed our moon. Um, so nothing really survived that. But very soon after that, as you say, life evolved. But a lot of people believe that life could have evolved on Mars because Mars, although it's slightly outside the perfect habitable zone now, was, was actually once in that zone um, and, and will actually enter that zone again in the future. So, yeah, a lot of people believe life could have co-occurred on two planets. And, of course, that brings up some really amazing philosophical uh, questions. And do you think that if there is life on Mars now, do you think that it could be in a sort of stasis, sitting, waiting, so that when the sun gets a bit warmer and swells up a bit as it ages, that life could come back to life, as it were. Yeah, it's quite possible. I, I mean, one of the things about microbes uh, that, that's, that's really uh, remarkable is their ability to essentially go dormant for very, very long periods. Um, we've, we've retrieved bacteria from ice cores, you know, thousands of years old that are viable. So, yes, it's quite conceivable. Thanks, Steve. Professor Steve Pointing, and he is the director of the Institute for Applied Ecology at AUT University. You're listening to The Naked Scientist this way up with me, Simon Morton, from Radio New Zealand National, and Dr Chris Smith... Back down to Earth, having been out in space on Mars, and antibiotics. Now, antibiotics were first discovered in the 1920s. They've since saved millions of lives. But within just a few years of them being introduced, resistant bacteria were already cropping up. And now we're at a stage where there are some infections afflicting humans here on Earth that we just can't treat. But Heather Hendrickson, who's a lecturer in molecular biosciences at Massey University, is exploring how we might be able to go back and use an older technology to solve this more modern-day problem. Hello. Good to have you with us. Hi, so, guys. So what is your approach? What are you trying to do? Um, so <clears throat> I guess the older idea that you're talking about, in fact, is instead of thinking about using chemicals that bacteria and other microorganisms have been using against one another, um, let's just try using something like a microorganism. And so the idea here is that there are bacterial viruses, so viruses that exclusively infect bacteria. And that if we can find targeted groups of bacteria phages, which is the name for these viruses that only infect bacteria, then maybe we could come up with cocktails of bacteriophages that would be effective treatments. We could actually take them um, as a therapeutic agent instead of taking something like an antibiotic. It's ironic to think that bacteria can catch a cold, then, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. It's much worse than a cold. So if, if, so if, if it was a cold, yeah. So what happens with a, with a bacteriophage infecting a bacterial cell is that, in fact, the bacteriophage will um, adhere to the bacterial cell 
And then many of them actually have this like injector core tail. So they're basically like, these are bacteriophages are just protein capsules and they have a little tail and they have like a little spider-like end often and they kind of attach onto the cell and inject this like core down into these uh, cells and it just flood the cell with their copy of their DNA. And usually this is only like 50 genes, so pretty small. But the, that 50 genes or so that's injected in allows the bacterial, um, the bacteriophage to take over the machinery of the bacterial cell, build hundreds, often, copies of itself, and then ultimately just it explodes the bacterial cell, releasing hundreds of copies of itself. So it's a lot worse than a cold. Wow. So the tail, <laughs> so the tail this injection thing, it's like the, the phage is going in there and taking over the photocopier in the office and saying, yeah, I'm going to control the printer and just print out all this weird stuff. Really very similar. That's a great analogy. Photocopying your boffin. Exactly. How did I not think of that before? Yeah, sorry. Nice yeah. to, nice to hear about the Radio New Zealand National yeah. Office Party, what goes on there. But, um, so, so when they do this, they, they get into the cell, they make hundreds of copies of the bacteriophage, burst the bacterial cell, and what those new copies would then go off and track down and kill more of the same bacteria. Right, and I think one thing to remember is that they don't actually, and this is a real problem actually with online videos of these things, like they often look like they're kind of swimming, like they're just, they're, they're out seeking for their next, um, their next lunch, right, or their next, their next uh, parasitism uh, candidate. Um, but actually they're completely inert. So they're just these protein shells with a little bit of DNA inside and this like very lethal looking tail little spidery bit, but they, they are completely inert. They don't have any ability to generate um, ATP. They don't have any energy source or anything, so they just kind of bump into the next cell, and it's really about the um, particular molecular um, identity of the bacterial cell and the bacteriophage that allows them to be specific. And actually, it's that specificity that's one of the things that make them really interesting in terms of um, therapeutic agents in the future. Do you mean as in that they can only get into bacterial cells? Well, only bacterial cells. And all of the bacteriophage that we've ever found have very specific bacterial targets, right? And so if I find um, a, bacterial fa- a bacteriophage that's really good at infecting some kind of pseudomonas, it's not very likely that that's going to be able to infect some kind of mycobacterium or some kind of E. coli. And the reason that that's really cool, especially when we compare it to this um, antibiotics um, and the things that we're going through in terms of antibiotics, is that antibiotics are often very like broad spectrum, which means that you dump antibiotics into your system You've got lots of really good for you kinds of bacteria in your system. And that antibiotic almost goes off like a small nuclear bomb, right? And so it just kills tons of these bacteria, tons of bacteria that are really good for you. And the thing about a bacteriophage is because it's so targeted, if you can figure out what's making you ill and you can take a cocktail of these bacteriophages that are making you ill, then they'll only kill the bacteria that are making you ill. And that's really powerful, actually, compared to what we've been dealing with. So why haven't we got them today? What's going on? What's that? Why, don't Why we haven't have we them? got them in action today? What's <laughs> stopping you? Um, so, actually, I should say that, that there was a time in Russia and in Russian Georgia where phage therapy was the, the done thing. Um, and so phage therapy has been used for human therapeutics um, in the past, but it's not currently approved right now. And so one of the things that I'm doing at Massey University is I have a class of undergraduates, and we're trying to find new bacteriophages. Are you, what, using them as victims? <laughs> <laughs> 
them. I'm using them as scientists. So, uh, just checking. Yeah, I have a group of undergraduates, and um, they go out and they bring us soil samples, and then they take the soil samples and they search for bacteriophages. And so far, we've found about a half dozen bacteriophages. We've sequenced three. Um, and what the students are able to do is find their very own bacteriophage, completely unique. It's never been seen before. They're able to name them, and then we sequence the genome of each of these bacteriophages. And so the students actually get the opportunity to look at the DNA of a completely novel organism, and using the kinds of bioinformatic tools that we have access to today, figure out where the genes are and what the genes are in this completely new entity. And the undergraduates in my class are going to be publishing a paper with me on this. And will they be? Potentially therapeutic, any of these? Will they attack human infecting bacteria or are they just infecting soil bacteria? So it's all about the target organism that you use, right? And we happen to be using a pseudomonad. So this is a safe pseudomonas. Um, this is pseudomonas. another kind of bacterium, isn't it? Pseudomonas. Yes, yeah. so this is a pseudomonas that's like really beneficial to plants. But it's very closely related to Pseudomonas aeruginosa, which is the really problematic agent in cystic fibrosis. And it's also very closely related to um, Pseudomonas syringae actinidae, which is the, the kiwi fruit pathogen. And so we're hoping that in the future we can find bacteriophages that you would be able to, for example, if you had a big load of pollen that was headed on into the kiwi fruit um, industry here in New Zealand, you could spread these bacteriophages on. Because you import pollen to fertilize crops, don't yeah, you? Yeah, it's a really important part of the way the kiwi fruit industry works here because of the male-female bias in the orchards, for example. So, of course, if you brought in pollen that was contaminated with a pathogen, obviously New Zealand may have very good biosecurity at the airport. But if you've got some microscopic freeloader in your pollen, right. then you could infect your crops here, and this right. would be devastating. But you're saying you could have a bacteriophage, a virus that would attack any bacteria that are in the pollen. And it would be very and specific. And, and the other nice thing about bacteriophages is if you have those kinds of entities, then um, they, of course, degrade, right? They're made out of protein and DNA, and they are delicious to lots of other organisms. So you spray them on the the pollen, they infect anything that's there, and then they're basically going to be recycled. Thank you, Heather Hendrickson. And Heather is a lecturer in molecular biosciences at Mass University. This is The Naked Scientist, this way up with me, Simon Morton, from Radio New Zealand National, and Dr Chris Smith. Now, from drug therapies to behavioural therapies... Traditionally, counselling sessions have involved face-to-face meetings between patients and doctors or therapists, but they didn't suit everybody, and it wasn't always convenient to go and sit down for an hour to meet somebody. But now Sally Merry, who's at the University of Auckland, has developed an online solution to the problem using an e-therapy video game that she calls Sparks. So she's going to tell us. We just heard a bit about it there. Hello, Sally. So tell us some... This, is, this seems pretty obvious, to actually take the counselling session out of the counselling clinic and make it available to people on their terms electronically. It does seem obvious, although I think that there are a number of steps along the way. So um, I have been met with a great deal of scepticism by therapists who say, how on earth can you replace face-to-face therapy? Do you think they might have a vested interest? They could possibly. <laughs> <laughs> but I think they also do make a good point in that Uh, interactions between two people are quite complex and there are a lot of subtleties within that. And how do you actually get a computer which is basically metal and plastic and so on and get an interaction that somewhat mimics 
what you, what you might actually do in a therapy session. And I think what we've actually done in Sparks is we've actually taken both a fantasy game format but also some of the e-learning theories where you actually think about how do people interact with computers and what are the things that make it compelling, what keep people in there, um, and how might you actually, what we're actually trying to do here is change habitual ways of thinking and deliver basically a cognitive behavioural therapy through the medium of an interaction online. Well, if you link it to triple eight poker or online bingo, you'd be sorted, wouldn't you? <laughs> yes, I think that might be a slightly simpler interaction, of course. <laughs> no, but I mean, what sorts of conditions could you treat with this? Well, I think the, um, we're just at the, at the start of exploring what might be done here. So what we've actually done is we've, uh, this is actually targeted to depression in young people, and the cognitive behavioural therapy model that we've actually used is one that's been proven in face-to-face therapy. And I think one of the things that makes it one of the easier things to perhaps put online is that we've actually got quite a clear theory behind it where the whole idea that your feelings just happen to you is not actually true. What you actually think about things and what you actually do impact on your feelings. So you don't just have to be a passive recipient. We can extend that very easily to anxiety disorders and there are effective e-therapies for anxiety disorders as well. And we're thinking about where can we go next? So might we use it to help substance use disorders, can we help parenting and can we teach people social skills and should we be, should we and can we be using some of the social media to create sort of like therapeutic communities online and so on. So I think there's a huge number of things that we can do. There's quite a lot of things where we could perhaps link it to some of the biology. So if you're stressed, your heart rate variability goes down. Generally speaking, your heart rate fluctuates and if you're not stressed out, then there's quite a big fluctuation with, with how you breathe. If you are stressed out, then your heart rate variability goes down because your heart rate's at a, at a higher level. You can actually measure this, obviously, using pulse things. And there are actually some games. There's a, there's a lovely game called um, Journey to the Wild Divine. And it's played with clips on people's fingertips. You, you clip in and then you just do it with your mind. So you can go into this game... And you can spin wheels, you can shoot arrows, you can balance rocks, and you have to do it just with how you're thinking. So if you, if you think yourself into a calm mental demeanour, thinking, yep. I'll get calm, you make the programme so that the success in the programme is linked to somebody adopting the right sort of physiology, the right level of calmness, and this, without them even realising it, they're thinking themselves into a calm place. Is Absolutely. that what you're saying? Absolutely. And so your, your yeah. sort of app will approach this in the same sort of way. So Sparks doesn't do this. This is actually looking to where we might be going. Sparks is actually very, very active. So here, when we were developing it, a lot of people have taken cognitive behavioural therapy. They've put them onto books and then putting it onto lines. Lots of people have put what I think about as manuals online. So there's lots of writing and there's stuff that tells you what you can be doing. And we tried some of this approach with young people with some of our early iterations. And the nice thing about working with young people is they do give you very honest feedback so (laughs) they said this is really boring it sucks we don't want to do this we don't want to read anything um we want to do stuff and particularly the boys wanted to shoot stuff and you know (laughs) this is this is a game for this is a game or an intervention for depression so we didn't want anybody to die so we had to think about what we were going to do so So we created a story and every bit of cognitive behavioural therapy that we could think of, we tried to think about what could you do in a fantasy game format. 
So one of the things that we actually did was we, we had to deal with this shooting issue. So in the game, the idea is that the world has been infested with gnats, which are gloomy, negative, automatic thoughts. And so we decided that's actually quite a good thing that you could shoot. So, so we or shoot swatting. gnats. Yeah. It's a swatter. <laughs> that's right. Um, but you also want to convert them and think about how you can actually change things. People who are prone to depression tend to take a bit of a negative view on life and they interpret the world in a negative way. How can you actually change that and how can you transform that? So we have a swamp province which is infested with gnats and the gnats come flying at you and they say awful things like, you're a loser. And then you have to work out what kind of a gnat is this. And if you can classify it correctly, you get a nice little spark. So spark stands for smart, positive, active, realistic, X-factor thoughts. So if you, tr- if you can classify your gnat properly, then out comes a spark that tells you you're not a loser at all. You're just giving it a good go and you need to think about yourself in a different way. So it's actually changing things, um, trying to help, that's called cognitive restructuring, people to, to do that. Does it actually work? Have you been able to measure its success and how effective this is versus face-to-face? Because I, I thought you were going to say versus Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> There's a whole other story. <laughs> Yeah, it does work. We've done a big trial in New Zealand. We tested it with 187 young people in New Zealand. We randomised them to have their treatment as usual, which is mostly face-to-face counselling with mostly very good counsellors, and Sparks was as good as um, the face-to-face therapy. Do you think it also is popular or effective because people do it on their terms when they want to do it? Whereas if you say to someone, you've got to turn up to this appointment at this time, if someone's not in the mood, for whatever reason, for going and engaging in that appointment at that time, it's not going to work as well. Absolutely. And in fact, um, you know, I'm a child, child and adolescent psychiatrist. I don't find that young people are necessarily beating their way to my door. They necessarily... <laughs> think not why. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, yes, so this, this, this means that people can do it anywhere, anytime in privacy. Mental illness still carries quite a stigma to it. But the other thing is we don't have enough therapists. Depressive disorder is one of the most common and most expensive illnesses in the world. And about three quarters of young people with depressive disorder will never get any help for it. Thank you, Sally. Sally Mary from the University of Auckland. And it's sparks.org.nz. Do drop in and have a look. Now, in recent years, the world has seen a molecular revolution. We can now read the complete DNA code for a human being in just days. It took the Human Genome Project a decade and billions to do the same thing as we do now in a laboratory in next to no time. And the same technology can also be applied to other organisms, including microbes. Now, Lexi Drummond from the University of Auckland uses this very technology to work out where organisms have come from. So how do you do this? Specifically, we do... Do uh, research ourselves on on viruses, HIV, hepatitis C, uh, influenza, and those viruses are particularly interesting because they're they're examples of what we call measurably evolving populations. I mean, influenza two years ago to today, there's been about one percent evolution. So the the genomes are one percent different now than they were just two years ago. Now that's about the same difference as between humans and chimpanzees, and it's happened in two years. So we're talking about a million times faster than things like us are evolving. And so that creates a huge problem, and one of the reasons we don't have any vaccine for influenza yet, we get a flu jab which uh, each year, which is designed for that season and actually doesn't work very well because it's already moved on a bit from when we designed that that flu jab. Um, and so this is a, a major issue, obviously, and, and one that our software 
tries to track and help. What sorts of things are you able to wind the genetic clock back on to sort of work out when they came from? If I asked you, for example, where you think HIV, the virus that causes AIDS, came from and how long ago, could you apply your sort of technology to the virus, work out how fast it's evolving and then wind its genetic clock back? Absolutely. I mean, that's one, that's one of the, the first sort of major applications of, of the software that, um, that we've developed. It's now fairly well established that the HIV strains that are circulating in humans today had four, about four or five origins, all from Africa, around 100 years ago. And they didn't come into, for instance, the Americas until about the 60s or 70s, based on, on genetic evidence. Um, but that was still 10 or 15 years before we recognised that there was such a thing as HIV and that it was the cause of, of AIDS. And part of the reason for that is because you don't die from the HIV virus, you die from pneumonia or something else because it, it destroys your immune system and it takes 10 or 15 years for that to happen. So a lot of people would have had HIV in the late 60s and the 70s in the US and were undiagnosed and, and probably died undiagnosed. Well. But 100 years ago is not very long for a, a virus of the sort of impact that HIV has had to have, to have occurred. Mm-hmm. So where did it come from then, 100 years ago, to pop up? Out of existence. So HIV is related to the simian immunodeficiency viruses, SIVs, which are um, found in many different species of um, monkeys and apes in Africa. And so there's, like I said, at least four major introductions into humans and, and probably hundreds actually that didn't, that got into one human but never continued to spread within humans. So, so th- this is constantly happening. We're having cross-species transmissions. And what the genetic data tells us is uh, where... Uh, and at what time the, the ones that have been successful, a, successfully able to spread have come from. We're talking romantic interludes here? I'm sorry <laughs> to ask the dumb question, but... Well, um, one of the major things that's happening in Africa right now is that there's an increase in bushmeat trade, and bushmeat trade is um, people going in to find food uh, from wild sources w- within the jungle, uh, and what you get is contact between blood uh, essentially most of the time, blood-to-blood contact, eating uh, wild game that is infected is, is one of the ways that you can get HIV. It's also the way that probably Ebola uh, sometimes has been getting into I was going to ask well. you about this. This is a very modern kind of current threat, isn't it, with Ebola, the worst outbreak we've ever seen uh, this year currently occurring in Africa of Ebola. So That's what does right. your research reveal about where that may have come from and how all that so is. So the Ebola that's currently in, uh, spreading in Guinea and, and a few other countries uh, is genetically related to Ebola Zaire, which was first the first identified human outbreak was in 1976. So we've known about this genetic strain for almost 40 years now, and, and the outbreaks have been occurring, small outbreaks of a few hundred cases uh, every five or ten years since then. And to put that in perspective, Ebola is a fairly typical RNA virus. It evolves maybe 10 times slower than HIV or influenza. Its evolutionary rate is, say, 1% change in 10 or 15 years. It's about the same as measles. Uh, the other thing to put in perspective is, although uh, maybe a couple of thousand people in that 40 years have died from Ebola, influenza kills half a million a year. AIDS-related illness takes 1.4 million people per year. Is there an idea that Ebola, though, could speed up? So could Ebola become incredibly virulent? Typically, actually, when a virus comes into a new species, the pattern is for virulence to decrease, not increase. But in terms of the evolutionary rate, this is really determined by um, fundamental features of how the virus translates and how it's spread and the way it copies its genome. And these things don't change uh, over time. So we know a lot about Phylloviridae, the, the group of viruses that um, Ebola comes from. And it, that 
pattern of 1% per 10, 15 years, we now have data from 76, from, from the 80s, the 90s, 2002, 2006, and, and this latest outbreak. And it's very clear what the pattern of the evolution of that virus is. And I think probably the only reason we don't have a vaccine for it is because in the scale of things, it hasn't been a major uh, disease compared to many of these other ones. Where did it come from in the first place? It's not naturally a human virus. It's a virus that has a, some sort of wild animal reservoir. You can find Ebola in monkeys and chimpanzees and gorillas, but they also get disease. Um, so it's probably not their natural reservoir either. They get very bad disease. It's uh, most likely that it comes from fruit bats. A number of different species of fruit bats have been found to have Ebola virus within them in, at high prevalence, and they are asymptomatic. So it very much looks like a virus that's adapted to them. It's not very good for a virus to kill off its host. It makes it hard for it to spread well. And Ebola doesn't spread well in humans because it, it, it's got such a high rate of lethality. Really briefly, are you going to be able to predict in the future what's happening? It sounds like you've nailed looking back. What about the future in under 30 seconds? So I think influenza is the main one that we want to predict, and it comes every season to New Zealand anew from uh, the airways, you know, landing in Auckland or Christchurch. Uh, so um, we also know a huge amount about the molecular structure of that virus and the proteins, how they fold. So I think in those cases where we've got huge amounts of data and we know a lot about how the virus actually functions to infect the cells, um, we do have chances to predict these things. Thanks, Alexi. Alexi Drummond from the University of Auckland. Right, well, Matt Goddard is a senior lecturer at the School of Biological Sciences uh, at Auckland University, and he's just discovered evidence of mutualism between microbes. Hello, Matt. Hello, how are so you? Well, you better tell us, I'm very well. You better tell us what mutualism is, first of all. Most organisms interact with other organisms in some way. Sometimes that's not very good. Parasites, for example, interact with other organisms to the detriment of the other. Sometimes, however, both organisms benefit from that interaction, both gain, and that is simply a mutualism. So think about insects pollinating plants. The insect gains, it might get nectar, and the plant gains because it gets pollinated. Mutualism. So, so that sounds pretty straightforward. What are you actually trying to find out then? Well, whilst we've known about mutualisms for a long time, the way that they might become established in the first place is, is unknown. There's no general rule to help us understand how two organisms might come together for the benefit of each, each other. So like yeast and a human, beer... We drink it. <laughs> yeah, that's a special kind of mutualism. Yeah, <laughs> Very special in my case, yeah. And some very special mutualism going on in the pub last night between <laughs> me and Simon. So what you're saying is that there's, there's got to be a special sort of evolutionary niche there where there's a gap made and something can fall into it to help something else and one, one scratches the other's back. Yeah, it's hard to imagine how that would become immediately established, how both partners can immediately benefit. You know, it's, it's hard to imagine how those things can suddenly come to be. But why? Because I would think that there's lots of opportunities in nature for many rolls of the dice, and it's just chance that this thing happens to have something the other thing wants and vice versa, and they, they get together. Yes, that's right, but there's, at the moment we have no general rule about, to describe that. The only general rule that we have is that both partners must leave more descendants by interacting with one another, but there's no general rule to understand how that would become established in the first place. Isn't the first sort of really fancy example of this that if we go right back to the, the sort, sort of the history of the beginning of life on Earth where you see the cells we're all made of coming into being in the sense that you get bacterial-type organisms snuggling up with more advanced cells like ours, the two then establish a relationship and we still see these sort of bacterial cells living in every single one of our cells now, in the form of these things we call mitochondria. Indeed, and that's a stunning mutualism. And, and you could take any other of the myriad of mutualisms in the biological world, and individually you could explain how that came to be, but the question is, is there a general rule that allows us to explain how mutualisms comes to be? So do you think there is a rule? 
we set about trying to test one of these rules, and um, so there's another central theme in, in evolution and ecology, which is called uh, niche construction or ecosystem engineering. And this simply says that uh, organisms, by their own actions, modify their environment to some extent. You know, from simply consuming food and making waste to more elaborate ideas like beavers constructing dams. And so this suggests that maybe an organism has a hand in its own evolutionary trajectory, because if an organism is modifying its own environment, then it's modifying the environment to which uh, it's exposed to, and thus its selection pressures. Wow, so the scenario there is I've got a cat. I put a cat flap in at home. Mm -hmm. Now, for me, that's a modification of my environment. I get a bit of a draft in the cat flap. It's a bit of a hassle. But the cat can come and go. It can have a crack at the local mice. I'm living in a rodent-free environment. When the plague comes, I'm going to survive. <laughs> I, I take your point, yes. Uh, is that, <laughs> I've modified a niche, though. Is that, this is the... This... Also, is it not fair enough to say there's another kind of mutualism going on between the cat and your kid's sandpit? True. <laughs> and that modification is something that I really don't enjoy, especially when you're going to scrape it off. But your discovery is specifically looking at microbes. That's been well, this, the, the niche modification. So we put together both of these ideas, this idea of the evolution of mutualisms and this ecosystem engineering, and ask the question whether this ability of organisms to modify their own environment, whether that could be a general instigator for the evolution of mutualisms. So another thing that yeast kick out is a bunch of volatile compounds. So these are the things that make beer and wine taste and smell nice to us. But clearly yeast didn't make these uh, compounds for us. There must be a biological reason that yeast kick out these volatiles, and that was unknown. So one idea is that they, in fact, kick out these volatiles as chemical lures for insects. Imagine a funny little microbe sitting on a bunch of grapes. It can't move. When that bunch of grapes is eaten or falls to the ground and rots, that microbe dies with it. So the only way this microbe is going to persist in evolutionary and ecological time is if it escapes. How's it going to escape if it can't move? Well, maybe it attracts something to move it for it. Maybe it attracts a vector. Maybe it lures in something that it can get stuck to and then gets moved through the environment. So the idea is that these volatiles that yeast kick out during fermentation are there to attract insects. And so we tested this directly in the lab, and we found that to be the case. We found that flies, fruit flies, are differentially attracted to different types of yeast, and that those yeasts that are more attractive, in fact, get dispersed more in the environment, both in the lab and then we went to the vineyard and did the same thing. Matt Goddard, and Matt is a senior lecturer at the School of Biological Sciences at Auckland University. Thanks so Pleasure. much for coming in. Hey, thank, thank you. you. Round of applause. You're listening to The Naked Scientist this way up with me, Simon Morton, from Radio New Zealand National, and Dr Chris Smith. David Passmore is a pollination scientist at Plant and Food Research. Now, we've heard a lot about the demise of honeybees and bumblebees. So tell us about your research and what you're trying to do to help. Right, so what we're trying to do is um, actually develop alternative pollination systems for growers in New Zealand. And that's largely because of the threats that are facing honeybees. Um, the biggest problem for growers is it means that honeybees get more expensive. So they have to pay hundreds of dollars per each hive uh, to put it in their crop. They want eight hives per hectare. That's a lot of money. Um, so what we're trying to do is we're trying to develop alternative systems. And one of the big things that we're doing is trying to uh, turn bumblebees into a system that growers can manage in their, in their orchards. So currently, if you want bumblebees in an orchard, you have to pay over 100 bucks for a cardboard box like this. And I'll just open this up carefully. Carefully. Uh, in here, there's probably about 100 uh, bumblebees in a small colony. 
I'll turn the microphone on, you can hear it. If I whack it, they'll start coming out. Well, don't do that. <laughs> All right, so this is, this is what there. growers have, the op option they have at the moment if they want bumblebees. But these really are designed for glasshouse tomato pollination. And when you say 100, because if that were a box of that size with mm -hmm. honeybees in, you'd have 100,000 in something of that size, wouldn't you? So do bumblebees live in smaller groups than They definitely then? live in smaller groups. So that's one of the big li limitations. If you're just wanting numbers of bees, get yourself a honeybee hive with 60,000 bees. This is only, you know, maybe 200, 100 to 200. Um, this works well in, in uh, glass houses uh, for tomato pollination, but when you put it out in the field, they often really struggle to figure out how to get outside the box to start with, and that they're actually meant to forage. Um, so what we find, and it's just simply too expensive. If you've only got a couple of hundred bees in a box like this, uh, why not just buy a honeybee hive? So, so they what need to learn to think outside the box, is what you're saying. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> That's so why you're paying for the joke there. <laughs> uh, so the, it's a problem of scale. If you've only got 200 mm -hmm. bees and you've got 200,000 plants and you had 200,000 honeybees, they would have no problem with one bee per plant on average. So the bumblebees, why can't you just have more bumblebees then? Well, actually, bumblebees have one thing in their advantage. Um, so uh, some of the study, especially with kiwi fruit, have found that one of these bumblebee workers does the job of 50 honeybee workers. So that starts to even out a little bit more. But you still need a whole lot of these, and these are simply too expensive. So what we're trying to do is develop ways that growers can harness the power of wild bumblebees. Because there's bumblebees out there in the environment anyway. Uh, the key thing with the grower, for the grower is that they like to count things. If they can't actually count and say, I have 10 colonies of bumblebees, they won't change their management at all. They'll just bring in the same amount of honeybees. So we want to give them a way to find out how many bumblebee colonies they have in their orchard and then give them tools to manage those colonies. So what we've developed up on your screen there is a picture of our bumblebee bunker, and that's our Mark 2.0. Uh, it looks kind of like a popcorn, you know, the, uh, not the popcorn, the, the Rice Krispie slice. It looks you like know, a breeze block. Yeah, yeah a breeze block, something yeah. like that. Have you got a designer on board? Or yeah. Uh, that... yeah, we... <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> I think we haven't got a designer on board, and that's part of the problem. Uh, this is actually like a flat-pack construction style, because we've, we've, we've expanded to a massive trial. We've got a thousands a thousand of these nest boxes going all in, throughout the country. We've got five regions in New Zealand, ranging from sort of coastal avocado orchards to high country red clover stations in Marlborough. And we're putting these in the ground. And the idea is that we want to build the best nest box that attracts queen bumblebees. So bumblebees, rather than honeybees that have a, they continue year round, bumblebees have an annual cycle. And only the queens survive over winter. So those queens hibernate in the ground and they come out in spring and they're looking for a new nest site. So we want to build something that just, to them, is just perfect. This is where they want to set up a new colony. So we've been trialling it for two years now. We've had great success, success, which enables us to expand to this new trial. So this is like the Bee Ideal Home Exhibition, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. This yeah. Is, yeah. So how do you decide that, whether the bees like the, the home you've made for them or not? What, what do you measure? We measure whether they turn up for a start. Um, <laughs> so it's interesting. That the, the simplest measure that most people around the world use is occupancy. Did you ever see a bumblebee or a sign of a bumblebee or a, think that there may be a bumblebee inside this box? And globally around the world, when they do these trials, you get about 3% success rate. You're going to have to put out you know, 300 of these to get just a few colonies in your orchard, which really doesn't work. Uh, New Zealand has this reputation for doing really well with these artificial nests. And so far, overall, with our start trial, we get about 30% occupancy. Uh, some watches up to 60% occupancy. So that's pretty dang good. Could, could you boost that by putting some kind of smell or chemical in there that Absolutely. might lure the queen in? Yeah, we've tried that. Um, a, a lot of the lures have been sort of based on floral scents. 
they're not looking for flowers when they're looking for nest sites, so that doesn't really work. But we're trying to sort of distill an essence of, of d- disturbed earth, you know, something like that. maybe, like Cavalier Bremworth, I'm thinking? We you know, like a nice tight yeah. fold sort of... <laughs> a little kitchen sink, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, I don't well, know. Well, we actually B-day, have maybe. used... Um, B-day, yeah. We've used carpet underlay, and that works pretty well, but that's the fibre. So the thing is, bees actually find it really easy to find our nest sites. And the key thing for us is understanding what is that trigger that when a bee comes into our nest site, what makes it think, ah, this is the place I want to stay, rather than just going back out again. Um, so one of the, the other things that we've been doing, um, especially because there's one bee species, bumblebee species we've had a lot of difficulty getting, is that we're putting little radio transmitters, and there's another picture here, on the back of these bumblebee queens. Um, so we're actually able to, to um, track them as they're searching for the nest sites. And we actually get at a very early stage, we get... Uh, a picture of where these bees are choosing to nest. And this picture is from, we've got a master's student from Massey University who's doing this study. She was up in uh, the Netherlands, and she's just come back to New Zealand. She's doing it again in New Zealand, uh, actually chasing these bees across the landscape. Does she use GBS? No, this is... <laughs> no. Just these is that, is that ethically... I mean, do you... That's not fair. Yes. I mean, that's like me having a rat's tail nine metres long. <laughs> It is. I mean, what, what we're seeing here is, is a bumblebee with a tail, and it, I presume that's the antenna, isn't it? That thing that's so streaming the antenna. off the And you can back. see the little package And here, it's about three times longer than the bee is. Does, does it impair the bee when it flies Occasionally it gets caught up in the flowers, but it doesn't seem to bother them too much. More oh, the right. problem is it gets caught up and then it gets ripped off and then we, don't, we lose the bee. What about the weight of the little transmitter thing, though? So the weight's about a quarter of the body weight. Wow. Uh, Hold on. But that's you've got to take into account... It's the size of a these... grain of rice, isn't it? The little thing yep, you've got stuck on there. These bees will, will easily carry their own body weight in pollen and nectar. So I brought along a backpack that's a quarter of my body weight, but that's blinking difficult to carry. But for the bees, they're used to carrying these sort of weights. The interesting thing, when we first put a transmitter on the bee, and I was quite nervous about this method, it was blowing 20, 30 knots at, at our research centre, and I thought, well, I can't release a bee into the wild. I took it up to our orchard where we have sort of good protection from the wind, and I go up there and I release this queen, and she goes straight up over the top of the protection into the wind and disappears. Never saw her again. Uh, so they certainly have no problem flying with this. We do need to make sure they're in good condition. They get a good feed of nectar before we release them, but they fly with no problem. And is it working? Do you think this is going to be a viable strategy? It certainly is. It, it gives us a level of information that we're not able to achieve in, in, in any other way. So you can find colonies at the late end of the season when there's lots of workers coming uh, in and out, but you've, it's almost impossible to find these early stage nests. So by putting these, uh, when they've first got a nest, we can actually build up a picture of what is that nest site when those queens first say, this is where I want to set up colony. We can figure it out and we can take those elements, build them into our bumblebee bunker design, uh, and hopefully improve the success rate. David Pattymore on his efforts to improve the efficiency of New Zealand's bumblebees. And that brings us to the end of this programme, which was a collaboration between The Naked Scientist and Radio New Zealand National's This Way Up programme. Thank you to Simon Morton for joining me. My name is Chris Smith, and thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.